please continue to make your dwelling among us and grant that as you dwell among your people, you make us holy as you are holy. That having cleansed our consciences of all the, the guilt that we knew was against us, the decree that we know the things that uh, people who do such things as we have done, that we deserve death, and yet you have granted us life. Help us with all seriousness to consider what Jesus Christ has done for us. And in that seriousness, with great joy to know that we live with you and you live with us. Help make this our hope, uh, make this our joy, make this our, our uh, eternal uh, goal that we would live with you in peace and joy everlasting. To the name of Jesus Christ, our tabernacle, our priest, and our, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It's in his name we pray, amen. Go ahead and stand up with us again as we continue to sing together, Jesus Messiah.
from heaven, Jesus Messiah, the Lord of all. All our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. All the glory to you, God. The light of the world. Jesus Messiah. Name above all. reason have I to doubt? Why would I dwell in fear? When all I have known is grace, my future in Christ is clear. What reason have I to doubt? Why would I dwell in fear? When all I have known is grace, my future in Christ is clear. My sins have been paid in full. There's no condemnation here. I live in the good of this. My Father has brought me near. I'm leaving my fears behind. Completely done. We're heirs with Christ. 
Father, we thank you so much that what you complete is completely done. That through the fighter verse this morning, Lord, that you have promised to us that you will finish what you start and complete in us. So, Lord, we thank you for just the salvation that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for you sending your son to die for unworthy sinners, God, and to rise again so that we could have salvation, God. I thank you for your love. Um, I thank you that we are here today, Lord, to hear more um, from your holy word. Speak your truth to us. Help us to understand it and take it in and to share it with others in your precious and holy name. Amen. If you're watching some old TV show and you see two kids in the backyard, two boys in the backyard with a playing baseball, what do you know is going to happen? One of them's going to hit the baseball. It's going to go through old man Grievy's window, and uh, and and they're going to try and cover it up. 
because they're little boys. They're going to try and cover it up. And they're going to try and run away. But eventually, through the wisdom of some older gentleman, they're going to come to see the, the fact that the, the reality of what they've done, that they have offended old man Grievy and they need to go back and, and, you know, they need to get on their paper route or mow some grass and they're going to pay back the window and uh, apologize and, and, and they're going to be reconciled to their neighbor. Now then, think about it. If you see some piece of artwork and this time it's not, it's not two boys, it's two people, one of them a man, one of them a woman, a uh, young married couple walking through a garden, What's going to happen next, they're going to take uh, fruit from a tree that God told them not to take fruit from, and then they're going to try and cover it up as if they didn't do anything wrong. But what's going to happen? Are they, are they going to be able to go back and uh, you know mow some grass or get a paper route or maybe do something really incredible? Are they going to, are they going to be able to go back and and make things right. Can, can they go back and maybe, maybe hey, we're sorry we took the fruit. Here's the payment for it. Can they go back and make things right that way? They, they can't. They, they didn't just break a window. They broke God's command. In the process, they broke their relationship with God. And they broke the world that they live in. That's the reality of where we are. That's the dilemma of humanity is that we... We have broken our relationship with God, and we can't make it right. So we're doomed, except, you know, the reality is, is that, that some people think that we're like the two boys who go back and we work and we pay it off. But we, as the offenders, typically that's the way we think of it, we're the offenders, we go back and pay it off. But in fact, it is God himself who has decided that he will go and take care of the offense. He is going to be the one who is going to reconcile us to himself. That's our hope. That's the good news. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And that's what I hope you'll see is that we are reconciled to God, not because we reconcile ourselves, but because God in Christ Jesus has reconciled us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And what we'll see first is the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, the fear of the Lord. We're going to start in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Follow along, it really helps, it really does. 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 10. Well, let's read through verse, verse 13. This is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 through verse 13. This is what it says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in, your, in our right mind, it is for you. We're mainly going to be looking at verses 11 through 13, but I want you to miss the connection between verse 11 and verse 10. Uh, in verse 10, Paul talks about the reality that all human beings will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. God himself has given judgment over to his son, Jesus Christ. It is his, his place to judge at the end of time. And uh, it is in that reality that, that Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. That is, in consideration of the fact that 
Jesus Christ is the judge. Jesus Christ is the ruler. Now, we should keep in mind that there is no, there is no anticipation in Paul's mind that he would ever stand before the Lord and be condemned. That's not, that's not his way of thinking. We can read from the beginning of 2 Corinthians, and we can see a, a lot of assurance, a lot of confidence that one day when he stands before Jesus Christ, he is not going to be condemned, but he is going to be accepted. He is going to be confident before Jesus Christ. And we'll see as we go through here why that is. What, what has God done so that a man who was a persecutor of the church like Paul could stand confident before God? What has God done so that people like us who have sinned against God could stand confidently before God? There is no, there's no sense a fear of of standing before God. There is no dread. There is no there is no threat of eternal uh, condemnation or destruction before God. And yet Paul is talking about he always lives with a with a consciousness of God's presence, not only of God but of Jesus Christ. Notice the fear is is not just of God, as if we were to separate who God is from who. What, what Jesus Christ is like, as if God were the one that we need to appease and, and Jesus Christ is the compassionate, loving one. No, God is not separated in his being. He is not separated. His, his justice is not separated from his mercy, but is consistent with it. So that we are actually to fear the Lord. We're to fear the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is always living with this consciousness of, I know that Jesus Christ is watching. I know that Jesus Christ is, is holding me accountable. I know that Jesus Christ is, is working uh, and, and watching over me. Not fearing his condemnation, but knowing that he is indeed judged. And we're going to see that there, uh, as we go through, we see him later on talk about the love of Christ. And he talks about the saving work of Christ. So, but there is, no, there is no disconnect between Christ as judge and Christ as Savior. Not for the Christian. The Christian knows that, yes, it's a good thing that there is a just judge of all the earth. And that judge is Jesus Christ. And it's also a great, it is great and wonderful news that we, he is a judge that is favorable toward us because of his death on the cross. All right. So he is still thinking about that, though. We should always be cognizant. And I think the healthiest people uh, spiritually are those people who live in a daily uh, understanding of God's love, and that, that's demonstrated in their own love and their own compassion, their own kindness, their own gentleness. Uh, and they also live in a daily awareness of, of the fear of the Lord, that they are working hard and they are obedient and they are diligent and they are zealous. Those things aren't uh, against one another. They are, they are consistent with one another. All right, so he says, with the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We try, to, we try to bring people to what we're going to see as reconciliation with God. That is, that is even what we've, what we've been seeing Paul do. He's been trying to talk reasonably with the Corinthians, trying to get them to understand, hey, you need to understand the, the, way, the, way, things, the way you ought to be looking at things is, is, is a, a new way. Not the way that the world looks at things, but the way that Christ has changed your eyes and opened your eyes to be able to see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, the glory of God in the gospel. And so as we're trying to persuade people to know Christ. And yet, wouldn't it be great if we could say what Paul says? That's what we should be aspiring to, is to say what Paul says next. God knows what we are. God knows what we are. You know, it's the whole idea that, that Paul is thinking about God is watching, God is looking, and God sees who he is. That's the, the, it is, is the fact that 
Christ as judge that keeps him from using underhanded methods of proclaiming the gospel, that keeps him from, uh, from, from shrinking back from making an open statement of the truth. It is the fact that he is accountable to God. He is accountable to Jesus Christ. But God knows what he is. God knows that what he is doing, he is doing in the, in the pureness of his motives. He's not doing it for unrighteous gain. He's not doing it, uh, he's not doing it to win the, the applause or, or to appeal to other people. He is doing it out of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. God knows what we are. Now then, even with the fallibility, with the, uh, often, uh, the way that human judgment is oftentimes erroneous, Paul expects, hey, God knows who we are, you Corinthians, I hope that in your conscience, that is, in your faculty of knowing what is right and what is wrong, I hope that you know who we are too. Paul is basically saying, hey, we have opponents. Uh, there, Paul has opponents there in the church in Corinth. Those who are saying he's not really a fitting apostle. A real, a real apostle doesn't suffer. A real apostle doesn't, uh, doesn't go through the things that Paul has gone through. A, a real apostle uh, looks differently. He's a, he's a, he's a lot more, he's a, a lot more has, has the right look and the right style and the, and the right appeal. Paul doesn't have that. Paul's saying, hey, look at the way that we do things. We don't, we don't go toward underhanded we don't peddle the gospel we don't do it for unrighteous gain we don't try to appeal to people we don't fear what people think instead we are just simply making an open statement of the truth when we do it this way he, he expects that all of those who are judging rightly will judge rightly all of those who are in christ all of those who who think the way that the gospel teaches us to think they're going to see the way paul does it and they're going to see a reflection of what jesus christ did in coming down to us they're going to see that Christ was a suffering servant. And so those who are going to minister in his name, they're also going to suffer with him. You ought to know who we are. We ought to, you ought to be able to look at the way that we're doing things. And, and we ought to be able to persuade you. you ought to, we ought to have credibility with you because we are following the path of Jesus Christ. Well, he also says, we're not commending ourselves to you again. We're not trying to... He's not trying to establish his apostolic credentials again. He's just simply saying, hey, this whole time that I've been speaking to you about the, the right way of ministry and the wrong way of ministry is so that you will have an argument against those who, who judge according to external, judge according to appearance. Look at what he says, uh, those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Remember in the, uh, at the beginning of chapter 5, he talks about uh, how we are being renewed day by day. Or it's actually in chapter 4 about how we are being renewed every day internally, even while our outward beings are wasting away. Now he's saying, hey, there are some in the church in Corinth that only look at the outside. They look at, what you, they, they look at your style. They look at your look. They look at Paul and they say, here is this man who gets imprisoned and beaten and rejected. How can this guy be an apostle? How can this guy be one who is especially sent out by Jesus Christ, who is the one who rules over all things and has been uh, raised and ascended into the glory of God? How, how, can this, how can this guy represent Jesus Christ? Paul says they're judging according to externals. They're judging according to outward appearance and not what is in the heart, not, not Paul's intentions, not the way that Paul loves the church in Corinth, not the way that Paul is every day doing everything that he does to please the Lord. 
Many of you will know the story of how David was anointed in the Old Testament. Samuel, God tells the prophet Samuel, go to see, go to the house of Jesse. Go, to, go, go look at Jesse's family. And uh, I'm going to tell you who's going to replace the old king. King Saul, who had been unfaithful to God. And so Samuel comes into uh, Jesse's house, and they have a big meal. And uh, uh, it's kind of, a, kind of a big deal to have, have Samuel there. And, and then Eliab comes and stands before, uh, before Samuel. And Samuel thinks to himself, Ooh, this guy looks, he looks like the real deal. This guy's got the look. He's, he's tall and stately and kingly. Uh, and so this has got to be the guy. And that's when God tells him something. He says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When well, then God rejects Eliab and he rejects Aminadab and he uh, rejects the next son of Jesse and the next son of Jesse on down until he's rejected all seven sons. And then Samuel says, you got any more sons? And that's when the youngest son, Young David, who has been the shepherd of the flock, is brought in. And this is the one who is called the man after God's own heart. You know, God, God does not value externals the way that the world values externals. It does not, he does not value, he does not place emphasis on what, what it looks like, whether or not a person appears glorious or whether or not a person appears to be one who is, one who is suffering, one who is lowly. And he says, Paul is basically saying, God knows what's in us. He, he knows that we are not peddling the gospel. He knows that we are not resorting to underhanded means. He knows that we make an open statement of the truth. He knows that the reason why we are suffering is not, to, is not because we are, we are doing wrong or because we are inglorious, but instead it is precisely because we are doing what is right that we have the status and the position that we have, that we are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And he says something even crazier. He actually talks about being crazy. He says, if we are beside ourselves, literally, uh, you could think of that as he is being talking about, hey, if we're acting like we're out of our minds, that's for God. He is talking about being crazy for God. Like if you are looking at, if you are looking at Paul and you are seeing somebody who is, who is every day being, he's, he's always at the, in the middle of something. He's bouncing from affliction to affliction to from suffering to suffering. He's got to uh, be let down through a wall by, in a basket. He's got to flee a big crowd, a big mob that's going to try and tear him into pieces. And God sends in some Roman soldiers to kind of save him. Or he, he gets out of town or he gets stoned and dragged out and left for dead. And somehow he gets up again. I mean, he gets a viper that leaps out of the fire and grabs onto his arm, then he shakes it off, and everybody thinks he's going to die, and then he doesn't die, and then they think he's a god, and he has to explain, I'm not God. And, you know, they're, they're, it's just like, how, how do you do this? How do you live in the mountains, and you're sometimes exposed to the cold, and sometimes you're shipwrecked? This guy's crazy. He is, he is out of his mind. He appears to be mad. In fact, he is in very good company, as, God, as, as Jesus' very own family in Mark 3 says, you got to stop and eat. Are you crazy? And Paul simply says, hey, if we're, if we're out of our mind, it is for God. We are doing everything that we do to please God. I hope that you are ready to appear crazy for God. Now then, 
Christians should not be odd for oddness sake. It's not like we should wear special little hats that make us look strange or something, that make us stand out from other people. That's, that's not the point. We're not, we're not odd for oddity sake. But our devotion to the truth is going to distinguish us from the world. Our, our, our love, our, our love for one another, our love even for our enemies is going to make us stand out from the world. Our commitment to obey God's commands despite what the, what the outward current of morality is around us, that makes us distinctive from the world. If you're not prepared to, to look strange to the world, you don't have a part with Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split whole households. That is, you're going to live in such a way of, of such complete devotion to Jesus Christ that your own dad's going think to you're, think you're weird. Your own wife is going to think that you're crazy. Your own family is going to wonder what's happened to your brain. Paul simply says, if we, are, if we are out of our minds, if we are beside ourselves, if we are mad, it is for God. Then he says, if we're in our right minds... What he's talking about there is this persuasiveness. If we're, all right, all right so here we are acting like crazy men, uh, going from prison to prison and from town to town and, and, and suffering in these ways. We look, we look nuts. And here we show up to you and here we are trying to, you read through, you read through Paul's letters. It is, it is oftentimes such tight reasoning that you have to have somebody, you have to take a long time to explain it. I mean, he, he is saying, we are speaking to you in very reasonable ways. I'm trying to reason with you. I'm trying to, if, and if I'm trying to reason with you, it's for you. I'm trying, the, the whole idea is, is that, that here is, is a, a church that was founded by Paul that has turned against Paul. And if they turn against Christ's apostle, then they turn against Christ. And so he's trying to, win them back. He's trying to persuade them back. Come back. Come back to me. Come back to Christ. When you depart from the way that, from the way that I taught, you depart from Jesus Christ. Come back. Come back. Well, that's what we all ought to be thinking. We, we, we understand by thinking like the apostle, by, by thinking Paul's thoughts after him, by understanding what he says, he is speaking for Christ. And if we want to be, if we want to be reasonable, if we want to be in the right, we have to think the way that Paul thinks. We have to understand what he teaches. We have to understand his way of living and follow that model. Well, he does all of this in the fear of the Lord, and that's what we've seen so far. Next, we see the love of Christ. Pick up in verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live, uh, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He begins to talk in verse 14 about, we might have seen Paul motivated so far uh, by the fear of the Lord. And I think that we might wrongly think of that as a negative motivation. But now he, he moves into thinking of, of the love of Christ. The two are not separate, separate, separated. 
Uh, lots of times we, we read the, the Bible and we latch on to uh, some, some part that we find appealing and we neglect and ignore the other parts. Uh, that's really hard to do when it's separated by only a few verses, isn't it? You know, the fact that, that Paul is operating both, he both fears Christ, the Lord, and he is, has been captured and controlled by the love of Christ. Those, that, that is healthy Christianity. That is, that is, uh, that is this, this deep reverence for Jesus Christ and this knowledge of God's great love for us in Christ Jesus. That's, that's healthy Christianity. That's healthy faith. Anyway, he says, he, he goes on to talk about what he means by that. He's talking about he is, he is compelled. He has this compulsion that is driven by a recognition of the love of Christ. God, God loved him so much in Christ Jesus that now he is compelled and pushed and captured and controlled by the love of Christ. And so he says, he summarizes what this is, and in a lot of ways, this is, a, is this kind of a shorthand way of saying what Paul expounds on at greater length in places like Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. He says, we have concluded this, that one has died for all. That one is Jesus Christ. He died in the place of, as a representative of, sinners. So you have Adam on the one hand who represents all humanity. This is the way Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 talk about. You have, you have Adam who represents all humanity and, and Adam sins. And all of humanity is, is reckoned or thought of as, as or counted as sinful in him and uh, ha, as, as his corruption and ha, as his sinfulness is passed on, as is, as is inherited, uh, all people sin. And so there is death that comes from that. But in Jesus Christ, everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ as the one dies for all. All who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So he, he died. The, 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 uh, the, the one has died for all. Now then, think about this. Therefore, all have died. So there is this close connection, this close, we talk about it as union or, or uh, representation or, or he is like a, like a senator or the president represents the United States of America. So Jesus Christ represents all of those who are in him, all of those who are trusting in him. And the way that it works is that his death counted as our death. Our, our penalty was that we should die. But his death counts as our death. He dies in our place, takes the penalty in our place. So the one has died for all, and in him all died. When, when Jesus Christ was on the cross, we were all on the cross, except we didn't have to go to the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross for us in our place. It says one, died for, one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that, okay, this is the purpose it's not only that he would die in our place, but that he would, he would transform us into some people who are different. He died for all. This is verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So it's not, it's not just that his death was our death, but our old selves died with him. 
our old, the, the old self that was like Adam in his self-centeredness, that was living, we were living for, uh, for ourselves. When Christ died, that old self died with him so that we would live not for ourselves anymore, but for him who died and was raised. We live for Jesus Christ. We, we ought to be able to say this to people, that if Christ died for you, then you must live for Christ. So you think about how to share the gospel with somebody, how you are, are evangelizing others. Uh, at some point, in some way, you need to say something to them like this. You have a creator that you sinned against. The, the consequences, the, the wages of your sin is death. You, you deserve death from God. Not, not just simple, simple uh, mortality, but eternal destruction. But Jesus Christ has come and he has taken on our sin. He's died in our place. So that everybody who had turned from their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ would be saved. That's how we share the gospel with people. At some point, in some way, we need to make sure that we we are teaching as we share the gospel. If Christ died for you, then now you must live for Christ. You cannot continue to live for yourself. Christ died for all that those that he died for would not live for themselves anymore, but live for him. Again, one of those things that we cannot separate. We can distinguish them, but they are inseparable. If Christ died for you, then you are to live for Christ. If he died to take your sins away, then you must now, you are responsible to, you are obligated to. The purpose of Christ's death was so that you would begin to live for him. Not live for yourself, live for Christ. Go back to verse 9, what Paul says there. Whatever we do, whether we are with the Lord or away from the Lord, whether we're here in our bodies or we're away from our bodies, whether it is now or through the end of time, we live, our aim is to please God. It is to please the Lord. It is to live for Jesus Christ. Now then, he says in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. When he says according to the flesh, he's not just talking about in, in his body, uh, not just thinking about Jesus Christ as he was uh, when, when he was just a normal looking guy who was teaching extraordinary things and doing extraordinary things and ultimately dying on the cross. What he's saying when he's talking about fleshly is he's talking about we have the wrong way of viewing the world. We have a, we might think of it as a worldly way of viewing the Lord. That is, we judge Jesus Christ as unworthy of our affection, of our devotion, of our trust. Paul's talking about himself, I think, to a very large degree. He's talking about even if we once thought of him according to the flesh, we don't think of him that way any longer. What did Paul, not Paul the apostle, but Paul, Paul the Pharisee think of Jesus? Or he looked at Jesus, who was crucified on the cross. To to Paul, somebody who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. Well, he thought, how can can this guy, this guy must be a, in Paul's mind, he he must be a false teacher. 
He must be a false Messiah. He must be a false Christ. He must be somebody who's trying to lead the people away. And there, therefore, Paul is, is going and persecuting Christians. And he's, he's watching as Stephen is, is testifying about Jesus Christ, even while people are preparing or picking up stones big enough to knock him out, knock him dead on the spot. He's ready. He's, he's agreeing with that. He's watching over that. He's approving of that. What does he think about Christ? He's thinking about Christ according to the flesh. He's thinking about him in, in worldly ways. He's looking at the externals. He's looking at what he can see with his eyes. But what the Spirit of God did in Paul and what Paul, what, what changed in Paul was that he doesn't view Christ in a fleshly way anymore. He doesn't, he doesn't view Christ from a worldly perspective. He might have done that once. He doesn't anymore. Instead, he says in, in, verse, in verse 16, we regard him no longer. We regard him that way. We regard him as the Christ, as a great treasure, as one to give our lives for. We don't think of him as, as one who is cursed by God. We think of him as the one who was raised by God, who was vindicated by God who is justified by God as a truly righteous man and the one who now reigns, the one who now rules for God. That's how we think of him now. And then he finally says there, uh, verse 17, a verse that, that many of us know well. I, I, I thought about when I first started to think about reading, uh, preaching through Second Corinthians is, is I know a lot of these verses, like, like if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Or the old is gone, the new has come. Uh, don't we, uh, don't, if, you, if you grow up in church some, sometimes you, you, you catch on to these verses. And yet, to not exactly know what they're about in their context, it's been such a joy to discover those things. Think about what he's saying here. When I used to look at Christ, I didn't, I didn't see Christ the way that he really is. I just thought what he's saying to the Corinthians is, I once thought like you thought. You're looking at these stylish, appealing, attractive, false apostles who are coming in and they are winning, they are winning you to themselves. And they're teaching you a false gospel. And you're looking at me and you're seeing somebody who's suffering and somebody who is afflicted and somebody who's not, not that appealing and not that attractive. And you're saying, I, I don't really want to listen to Paul. I want to listen to these guys. You know, I once used to look at Christ that way too. And now I'm a new creation. I see not just externals, but I see with the eyes of faith that Jesus Christ is the one who died for me, gave himself for me. The way that Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he, he loved me and gave himself for me. That the life I now live in the flesh might no longer be lived for myself, but live for him. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 17, where he says he is a new creation, it's a little bit more literally, almost kind of stunningly uh, in the original language. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. You're in Christ. Everything about you is new. What Christ brings is new. He brings a new covenant to, to take the place of an old covenant, an old broken covenant where we broke God's commands and deserved his condemnation. Now he brings a new covenant where our sins are forgiven and we are transformed from the inside out, where we are given new hearts, where the spirit of God comes and lives in us. 
we move from the, from the old creation, a creation that's passing away, a creation that is transient, uh, along with bodies that are fading away. And now we have newness inside of us. We are being made new every day. Even while our old bodies are wasting away, we are being renewed every day because we belong, we belong to a new age, the age of the future, the age, of, the age when Christ is going to come and make all things new. We are new creations. God made us see. Gave us new eyes to see who Jesus really is. The old me, the old self, the old is gone. The old self-serving, self-loving, self-centered way of living that I used to live, that is gone. I now live for Christ. What is it to be a new creation except to live for Jesus Christ, to know who Jesus Christ is? And think of one of my favorite parables that Jesus told, the treasure in the field. Going through the field, man stumbles upon a treasure. He realizes what it is. He goes and sells all he has. He looks crazy for God. He sells all that he has so that he can have that treasure. What does it look like to be a Christian? It looks like to recognize Jesus Christ as who he is. Not to regard him in worldly ways anymore, but instead to see him as as who he is. As God taking on humanity, dying in the place of sinners like us, rising again, ascending to rule forever. That's who he really is. That's who we see him as. And so we live for him. So let us live for him. Let's live every part of our lives with the fear of the Lord, captured by the love of Jesus Christ, knowing that he died for us, that we will live for him. All right, finally, we see the message of reconciliation. Pick up in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't want to move too quickly past that little phrase at the beginning of verse 18. All this is from God. What's he talking about this? Talking about all the stuff he'd been talking about right before. All this new creation, all of this no longer seeing from a worldly perspective, no longer, no longer thinking in this way, no longer living for ourselves, having our, having our old selves die with Jesus Christ, our penalty taken by Jesus Christ, all of that, all that is from God. Don't ever lose sight of the fromness of God that salvation is. Salvation is from God. It is a gift. It is, it, is not, it is not by our contribution to it. It is the fromness of God. If there is anything that, that we understand by the grace of God and salvation, the unmerited favor of God, it is that it is from God. All this. And for you, some of you who are even more theologically astute, where does, where does regeneration come from? Where does recreation come from? Where does new life come from in the inner being? It is from God. We didn't make it up. We didn't cause ourselves to be made new. 
is from God. Then he describes how all this came into being. He says, God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, he's, he goes on to, in the very next verse to expand on this. But think about, think about what he says in two phases. All right, so there's both what, what God did through Jesus Christ, and then there's the proclamation of what God did through Jesus Christ. So he said, God, God, verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He... He is the one who, who dealt with our offenses and brought us to God, to, God, to himself. We no, normally, think about, think about it, back to the, to the window thing. If I offend someone, in order to, for it typically to be made right, I as the offender am the one who has to make it right. That's not what happened in salvation. We are the offenders who could not make it right. And God made it right for us. So when you th- even look at the words that he used, he taught every, every, God is always the, the subject of the sentence. He's always the one doing the acting. And we are the ones who are being acted upon. So there is a sense in which we were hostile to God and God changed all that. But what Paul is talking about here is not changing our hostility toward God, but changing God's hostility toward us. God himself turned his own hostility away from us. God himself dealt with the offense. God himself in Christ sent Jesus Christ to deal with our offense against God. So we didn't go out, we didn't, we didn't mow yards. We didn't get a paper route. We didn't go out and start to do, do good deeds. We didn't obey the Ten Commandments. We, didn't, we weren't moral enough. We didn't do good works enough to pay off our debt. God sent Christ Jesus to pay the debt for us. Well, he says there in verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was recon- reconciling the world to himself. Oftentimes, the, uh, the word world is spoken about as, as the world in rebellion against God. I think that's the way that Paul uses it here. The world was in rebellion against God, and God went out and took away the hostility. Took, he, he satisfied the offense so that he would no longer be hostile to the world but that we would be, be able to be reconciled to him. And, and he says they're not counting their trespasses against them. That's what it means to be forgiven, to not have your trespasses against you. You're, you're not the one who has to pay off your debt. It's not held against you anymore. That's good news. If you're a sinner, like I know that you guys are, and you know I am, if you're a sinner, but you trust in Christ, your trespasses, your transgressions, your law-breaking, your, your uh, commandment disobeying is not held against you anymore. He did not count our sins against us. But instead, he entrusted, he, he reconciled the world to himself and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see the two stages there? So what God did and then there's the entrusting of the message to the apostles. And he even says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the, the us there, okay? I'm, I'm trying to make a case here in the short term that us is not about us. It's about the apostles. 
I want you to try and follow me because think, think about how the apostles themselves are particularly chosen by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ particularly appeared to them. They act as a, in a special sense as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. I stress that because typically when we read this, we are, we are maybe looking for, uh, for something to, to encourage us to, to be evangelists. And there is that encouragement there. But we are kind of moving very quickly to get to us so that we miss the wonder of God specially entrusted the apostles to proclaim this gospel. They were, they were going to establish in a very fundamental way what the, what the teaching of the church would, would be or what the teaching of the gospel would be. They were going to be the ones who were going to initiate the expansion of the gospel out into the whole civilized world. They were going to be the ones who were going to be the, the founders of the church. That's one of the reasons why we hold the New Testament to be so precious it's because the New Testament is the teaching of the apostles. It is, the, when that, that means that the word of God is God's word to us. It, the, these scriptures, the 66 books contained in what we call the Bible, the Holy Bible, the, the special book, that is the word of God to us. When we are reading what Paul says here, we are hearing Christ speaking to us. Christ himself did not write down the scriptures. He did not write the New Testament, but he entrusted the, the writing of the scriptures. And, and the, uh, he entrusted the apostles to be ambassadors of Christ in a very special way. That's why it makes sense what he says. Because what does he say? We appeal to you or we implore you be reconciled to God. Why does he have to go to a church? And tell them, be reconciled to God. Wouldn't you normally, isn't this the kind of thing that Paul would probably say, uh, maybe more likely, maybe out in the marketplace, maybe he would be, he would be saying it uh, out among those that he knew would be unbelievers, or maybe he would go into the synagogues and he would, he would talk about being reconciled to God. Why does he say to people that he, he, he started the church, he, he talks about them as believers, and yet he says to them, be reconciled to God. He has made us his ambassadors. He has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. It's because if you don't believe what the apostles said, you don't believe Christ. You don't have a part in the apostles' teaching. You don't have a part in Christ. No Bible, no Christ. You don't... You don't Trust this, you don't believe in the scriptures as God's word. You don't accept what the apostles say as the gospel. You don't have Jesus Christ. Now then, I said we're not going to move too fast. That doesn't mean it doesn't have application for, for believers. It doesn't mean it doesn't have application for Christians. Because what did the apostles uh, start? They started the church. Disciple making didn't end with the death of the apostles. Disciple making ends with the coming of Jesus Christ. He says you will continue to make disciples until the end of the age. That's why when we get into 2 Timothy 4, Paul starts to talk. He starts to talk to, here is an apostle speaking to a non-apostle. Somebody who's in the church teaching the Bible. He says to him, thinking about, notice the, the similarity of language. Go look at 2 Timothy 4. He says, thinking with, in, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who judges the living and the dead, therefore, by the fear of God, we persuade others. 
same, same kind of pattern. But he says to Timothy, preach the word. Or preach the message of reconciliation. Preach the word. In season and out of season. Don't you see in the suffering of Jesus Christ what it looks like? I'm sorry, in the suffering of Paul, what it looks like to preach the word out of season? When people aren't ready to hear it? Well, and Paul even says to, to ordinary believers, walk wisely among outsiders, making the best use of the time. Best use of what time? The time before Jesus Christ comes so that you will know how to answer each person. It's Colossians 3. So it, it doesn't mean that we are, uh, when we speak of, of Paul being and the apostles being ambassadors in a special sense, that doesn't mean that we do not carry on their ministry as long as Jesus Christ or, or until Jesus Christ returns we are going to continue to carry the message of reconciliation to the world we're going to continue to preach this same gospel and if we want to connect the two this is the connection between the two we need to make sure that we preach the same gospel that the apostles preached Paul says, hey, if you preach, if you uh, hear me or an angel preaching another gospel contrary to the one that we preach, let him be accursed. Because that's no gospel. That's no gospel. There is no other gospel than this gospel of reconciliation where God comes and takes the offense for us, where God reconciles us to himself. And finally, we come to verse 21. Verse 21 if, if you go and you look, uh, almost, all, almost every sentence that Paul writes has this kind of linking word. So, you know, for, therefore, because. Uh, there are no linking words here. There's not, a, not even if, an if, and, or but. It's just, a, just, just almost stands out there disconnected as a succinct summarization of what is the gospel of reconciliation. So look at what it says. The one who knew no sin. In the original languages, that's what's come, that, that is what comes first. There is one who knew no sin, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not sin. He was born without a sin nature. He was born without the, the corruption or the taint of sin. And in his life, he never sinned. He never disobeyed God. He never displeased God. He always obeyed God's commands. He always, he, he said that his food was to do what his father told him to do. He did everything that God commanded him to do. When he went out into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan, he still remained sinless. He knew no sin. There was, there was never any temptation that came home to his inner being and actually pulled him toward sin. There was nothing. He was he was unsinning. He was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly obedient. He knew no sin. We can hardly imagine it because every human, ourselves and every other human being that we know knows sin. Christ knew no sin. But he was made sin. Remember earlier Paul says, not counting our transgressions against us. Do you know why they were not counted against us? It's because they were counted against Jesus Christ. We were not made to bear our sins. Christ was made to bear our sins. 
he was the sinless one who was being counted as a sinner. He was, he was a law keeper who was being treated like a lawbreaker. He was one who was completely faithful, who was being treated like a rebel. He was the one who was always faithful and, and was treated like a traitor. On the cross, he was abandoned by God. He was, all of the sin of everyone who would ever trust in Jesus Christ was laid on him so that he was made to be sin, to bear sin in himself. He was a, a, an unsinning one bearing our sin. And what did, what did that do for us? In him... We become the righteousness of God. That is, not only are our sins not credited to us, but credited to him. His, his, uh, his not knowing sin is credited to us as if we did not know sin. We are saved because God credits the unsinning of Jesus Christ as our unsinning. We are, we, we, we are sinners who are counted as those who have no sin. We are unrighteous, disobedient people who are counted as if we were righteous and obedient. We are traitors and rebels who are counted as if we are faithful in every way. All this comes by faith. By faith, God's righteousness and and you can even see that the there there is a kind of equal sign between Christ is the one who knew no sin he is God's righteousness he is the revelation of God's righteousness Jesus Christ is what it looks like for a human being to live a perfectly sinless life it's credited as ours by faith we receive it by faith God has taken every part of the, the, the necessity to reconcile us to himself. He took our, think of it this way, we think of it in terms of offenses. He took our offense and credited it to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ bore it. And, and in another place, Paul talks about the, the sun has the, kind of has the delay of the house. You know, if you break the window pane in, in, in Mr. Grevy's house, you don't get to go in and, and have, have cookies and milk. If, you, if, you, if, you trade, if you're a traitor against God, you don't get to go into the garden. You don't get to go into the kingdom of God. You don't get to live with God. You don't get to experience all the goodness and blessing of God. Except that the offense gets taken away. And so our offenses get taken by Christ. And now we get to go and live in God's house because that's what Jesus Christ gets to do. And we get created with what he has. Everything that Jesus Christ has is ours. It's ours. His kingdom, we get to live in it. His righteousness, we get to have it. His life, we get to live in it. He was raised from the dead, we'll be raised with him. New creation. New. We get that. And so, let us be reconciled to God. Trust Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins. Believe 
the gospel the way the apostles taught it. Be reconciled to God. Let me pray with for us. Uh, Father, uh, you have gone uh, beyond uh, justice without failing to be perfectly just and righteous. You have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. Thank you. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Son. We thank you, Spirit. We thank you. We thank you, God, for uh, the fromness of salvation, for the goodness of your love toward us. That while we had no we had no life apart from you, that we stood under the the sentence of death. And now we have everything that Christ has. New life, new bodies waiting for us, righteousness. We simply ascribe all praise and honor and thanksgiving to you. You are worthy. You are worthy to be praised. You are worthy. You are the author and founder of salvation. You are the source of all good things. You are the one who has made us and you are the one who has redeemed us. Grant that we would be new creations. Grant that those who are still living in the old self-centered way would be made to live in a new and living way, living for Jesus Christ. And grant that all of us would be reconciled to you, believing that there is no part of ourselves that have reconciled us to you, but instead you have reconciled us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, in order for us to not forget what Jesus Christ did, and even as we sing, you know, Jesus Messiah, his his uh, the bread, his body, the the cup, the the wine, his blood. This is the way that we have reconciliation to God. I know that some of you, uh, you may not be believing in Jesus Christ yet. You may not have come out and, and professed your faith in Jesus Christ yet through baptism. You, you may not be walking with Jesus Christ right now. And, and, and if that's the case, hey, in, in some cases, uh, this meal is not for you. It's only for those who are baptized believers and faithful fellowship with the local church. It's only for those who are, who are walking after the way of Jesus Christ, who are living to please Christ, who have, who have been baptized as, as believers in Jesus Christ. They have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet I still want you to observe the message that's here. Be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ gave his body and his blood for you. These are, these are symbols, these are representations, these are pictures that say to you, be reconciled to God. Hear those words. And for those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, who can say, hey, he, he, what does he say? Sorry, I know I just preached a long message about what he said. Just, let me just find it. He says, one has died for all, therefore all have died. His body and his blood, that was his death. His death counted as your death. So come be a partaker in his death. Take the bread, take the cup, and let's remember together what Jesus Christ did for us.
became sin, who knew no sin, we might become his righteousness, humble himself, carried the cross, love so amazing, love so Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sin. Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sin. from heaven, Jesus Messiah, the Lord of also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it 
and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The whole church said, come Lord Jesus. Praise the Lord for the preaching of his word. Amen. I'll share with you a couple quick announcements. Uh, today, 5 p.m., theology class, we're back here. So uh, 5 p.m., we'll be studying again. I want to encourage everyone who can to come. 5 p.m. today, and then uh, we were we had planned a barbecue night for the men for this Wednesday night, and there was a scheduling conflict, uh, and that's my fault. I apologize for that. We're just going to push it one week back, so it'll be August 3rd instead of this uh, this Wednesday night. It'll be August 3rd. Am I missing anything, Pastor Andy? I think those are the only two things we got. Amen. Man, it's been good to be here. Let me pray for us, and then you guys will be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for reconciliation, God. Thank you, God, that we can... Stand in your presence, Lord, and uh, and be without sin because Jesus took on our sin. And, Lord, it's my prayer that as we leave this place that you would bless us, that you would make your face shine upon us, that you would be gracious to us, that your ways would be known on the earth and your salvation among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.